was fantastic. Praise the Lord. You got me? Are we good? Can you hear me okay? We're all right? All right, good. Well, listen, happy Easter, everybody. I'm really glad that you all chose to be here with us, whether you're a regular at First Baptist or whether you're new, you're a, maybe you're just passing through town, spending time with family. We're really glad that you're here. If you don't know me, my name is Jeff Bartell, and I'm one of the pastors also here, and I get to be the one who gets to share with you a little bit out of God's Word today. Here at First Baptist Church, if you're not familiar with us, one of the things we typically do is that we'll pick a book of the Bible and we'll just study it. We'll go verse by verse and we'll go all the way through it. And starting back in January of 2018, we began the book of First Corinthians in the New Testament. You can take your Bibles if you have them and go ahead and open it there. We're going to be in chapter 15. We have worked our way all the way through, and today we are coming to chapter number 15. The Corinthian church to whom Paul writes this letter is a church that had a lot of problems. And as a result, Paul writes this letter and all the different chapters, Paul gives answers to the real-life problems that they were dealing with in the church in Corinth. And so as a result, this letter of 1 Corinthians, it's a very practical book of the Bible. It addresses things that we all deal with. And when we get to chapter number 15, where we're at this morning, uh, what we see is that Chapter 15 turns out to be the greatest chapter in all of the revelation of Scripture on the subject of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the problem that the Corinthian church had with the resurrection is that, well, they, they were all messed up on what exactly happened and how it happened. In fact, they had people that doubted whether Jesus Christ actually rose from the grave. Understand, this is within just a number of years of when all that would have happened. And so as a result of doubting the validity and the historical accuracy of Jesus Christ's resurrection from the grave, well, they naturally then doubted whether there was any life after death for any of them. Sounds pretty practical, doesn't it? Sounds pretty familiar with situations that we deal with, doesn't it? It sounds a lot like life today, doesn't it, where, well, a lot of fine, well-intending people just can't quite get their minds around this idea. How can you know for sure if there is indeed life after death? This is why 1 Corinthians chapter 15 was written. This is exactly what we're going to look at. It's very, very practical. Now, I understand that it's Easter Sunday, and I love Easter Sunday. I love to see church houses full. I love to see people dressed up. I like to see that, you know, we all came out, and, and it's a wonderful thing. In fact, churches all over the world today are going to be full of people, many of whom don't typically attend a church, but they decided, hey, today I'm going to go ahead and go to church. They, they may rarely go, or maybe this is their first time ever, and, and that's awesome. That's a wonderful thing. Uh, I do understand that among those who rarely visit when they come on Easter, maybe some, a few of them might actually not prefer to be here. I understand there may be some who are just visiting family and thinking, okay. That happens. Uh, this week, I, I was at a doctor's appointment and I overheard somebody say, yeah, I'm visiting family, I'm going to go to church. Uh, I know that that happens at times. Uh, it might be family tradition, uh, Maybe it's because that deep down they just don't really understand the historical fact that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and maybe they just think it's a religious story. I don't know. I mean, it's a nice story. Maybe they think that the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, is just kind of a, a, a metaphor for the idea that, 
well, you know, we should all get a fresh, clean start sometime in life. Well, can I tell you that that is absolutely not the intended meaning of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, sometimes we need a fresh, clean start in life, but that is not what this story is all about. Easter is literal. It is the story of an historical fact of Jesus Christ raising from the grave, and it is unquestionably the single greatest event in all of human history. I want you to ask yourself this question today. What is your life? What is your life? Uh, in the book of James, he addresses this question. James chapter 4, it says, Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? And then he says, It's even a vapor that appeareth for a, sh a little time and then vanisheth away. Well, one thing we know, and if you've lived as many years as I've lived, or if maybe you've lived a couple years more than I've lived, one thing you recognize is that, well, this life we have is fleeting, isn't it? It's relatively short. It doesn't last all that long. For sure, it's temporary, right? But the real question that every one of us wrestle with at some point in our life is, is death really the end, or is there more? And if there's more like some people seem to think like they know, how can we really know for sure? Well, can I tell you again, I'm so glad that you're here today. I'm so glad that we get to address this subject today. And if you have 1 Corinthians 15 in front of you, you can follow along. I'm going to go ahead and read the first eight verses. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto, unto you, Unless you have believed in vain, for I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. So Paul is addressing this subject of the resurrection to the Corinthian church, and, and he's pointing out to them, listen, y'all, this is a real deal, and we know it because there were actual eyewitnesses. And so that's the title I've given today's message, The Witnesses of the Resurrection. If you'll just take another moment with me, let's bow our heads, let's ask the Lord to go ahead and speak to us as we look more in more detail into his word. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we ask that you would make clear to us the truth of your word this morning. And whether we be faithful church attenders, whether we have heard this story multiple times, or whether we be here for the very first time, or whether we be hearing this explanation for the first time, or anywhere in between, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts. I pray that you would show us something new. I pray that you would help us to see something that we can learn that will help our lives, that will be practically advantageous to all of us where we are at today. And I pray, Lord Jesus, for those who are here who do not fully understand the implication of the resurrection, those who have yet to really realize that Christ's re resurrection is what guarantees the potential for our resurrection if and only if we put our faith and trust in him. And if they've not yet done that, oh Lord Jesus, I pray that this would be the day that they would. We love you and we commit this time to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. 
Amen. There's going to be three simple points. You do have the three points on the back of your handout. You can follow along. You can take notes if you like. You don't have to. Just listen and pay attention. The first point we're going to look at today is the gospel defined. The gospel defined. And this is what we see in the first four verses. You know, today people talk about the gospel. They use the term the, the gospel in various contexts. For example, if somebody's talking about any random subject, whatever it might be, and you, and you question what they're saying, they say, no, this is the gospel truth. And they'll use that phrase, the gospel truth, to mean, I'm not lying. I'm not lying. I mean, I really mean it this time, right? Uh, even in churches today, it's kind of funny. Among Christian people, the, one of the latest fads that I've noticed, a new trend, is, is to use the term the gospel to apply to every area of Christian service that you could possibly do. And they say, well, this is the gospel if you do this good work, and this is the gospel if you do that good work. And can I politely disagree and say, well, actually, that's not the gospel because the gospel is defined specifically for us in the first four verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The gospel is the story of the resurrection. That's what it is. It is defined for us in these verses where it says, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you what? The gospel. Then he goes on and describes it by saying that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. This is what the gospel is. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's nothing more than that and it's nothing less than that. And the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, friends, has to be according to the scriptures. That means that this whole story was prophesied previously. It was talked about in the Old Testament. We're not going to take a lot of time to go back there, but let me just point out a couple of places for you. For example, in Isaiah chapter 53, a lot of you are familiar with, starting in verse number 4, where it's prophetically speaking of the Messiah yet to come, Jesus Christ yet to come, where it says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. This was prophesied from the Old Testament. This is, this is the death of Christ according to to the scriptures and the resurrection as well for example in psalm chapter 16 and verse number 10 where it says for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one notice the capitals to see corruption jesus christ indeed indeed died he was buried he was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth and then he rose again he was not allowed to see corruption these things are according to the scriptures so the gospel, the definition, the textbook definition of the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. And literally the word gospel, the word itself, if you were to translate it, is actually the same exact term as good news. The gospel means good news. I'm going to share the gospel with you. I'm going to share some good news with you. That's literally what it means. It means good news. Now that is kind of interesting that it's called good news because when we look at the points of the gospel... And there's actually, I'm going to break them down into four points. You'll see that three of the four, well, they're negative, right? I mean, take a look. It starts off by saying, Christ died. Well, that's negative. He died for our sins. 
Well, that's negative. It's negative that, well, we have sin, and it's negative that it's for our sin, it's our sin that sent Jesus Christ to die. And then it says he was buried. Well, that's, that's negative. And if the story stopped right here, right, well, it, would, it wouldn't be good news at all, would it? It'd be terrible news. If it all that was true was is that Christ died because we're sinners, and then he was buried. Man, that's a, ter- that's a terrible story. But the story doesn't stop there, right? Praise the Lord. There is one positive point that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that one positive point is so positive that it trumps all the negative, right? It does away with all the negative that built up to it. That is that he rose again the third day. So when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 1 through 4 as the textbook biblical definition, anybody ever ask you in the future, what is the gospel? Just open 1 Corinthians 15 and read the first four verses. That's exactly what God says the gospel is. That's what it is. Yet, the story of the gospel is written in many other places and in many other ways and in much more explanation throughout all the scriptures. And so let's take a look at some of those places. For example, let's start in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 where the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? So we are sinners. Christ died for our sin. We are all sinners and we come short of the level of God's glory. Of course, there's something wrong. Something happened. We are sinners. Now, we're sinners, and we know that we're sinners, not just because the Bible says so, but, I mean, come on, face it. We've all blown it. We've all done something wrong. We've all done something we've regretted. We've all done things that we wish we hadn't have done. Uh, if you say you've never sinned, well, then you're just proving that you just sinned now because you lied. I mean, everybody's done something, right? We've all done it. We're all in the same boat together. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, it says that the wages of sin is death. So if you have a job, you work your job, and every couple of weeks or the end of the month, whatever your pay period is, you get a wage. And what is the wage? Well, the wage is what you have earned as a result of what you've done. And the Bible says what you've done is sin. And the Bible says what you have earned as a result of your sin is death. That's what it says. And so that's not good news, but that is true. Because I have sinned, one day I will die. But see, when the Bible talks about death, you need to understand it doesn't just talk about physical death. I mean, ever since we were young and began to grow up, we understood that life has a cycle. We understand that people are born, they live a certain period of time, and there comes a time when physical life ends. There is physical death, but actually the Bible talks about something called the second death. It's a spiritual death, and that's found for us in Revelation chapter 21 and verse number 8 where it says the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Man, that's a tough crowd, right? They're going to have their part in a lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You want another word for that lake which burns with fire and brimstone? We call that hell. We call that hell. And so back up a little bit. The Bible says that we're all sinners, every one of us, including me, including you, including the sweetest person you know in the world, every one of us, and that the wages of sin is death, and that death is not just physical death, it's also spiritual death, separation from God in a lake of of burning fire. If the story stops here, this is terrible news. 
because every single one of us has earned the consequence of ending up in hell. That's true of me. That's true of every one of you. That's true of all of us. And God tells us about this. And, and when we look at that list, by the way, and you think, well, I'm not that bad. I mean, that's some rough stuff up there, right? I, I do want to draw your attention to maybe the most important one on the list, and that's the second one, unbelieving. You see, at the end of the day, all that matters is if you don't believe the gospel. Well, it's to the Lord just as if you might as well have done all those other things. Because that's enough of a consequence to cause you to end up in this place that's considered the second death, hell. But thankfully, it doesn't just end here, right? The gospel doesn't end after three points. It goes on to the good news, right? And that's Romans chapter 5 and verse number 8, where God commends or demonstrates or proves to us just how much he loves us. How's that? Because while we were yet in this state of being enemies with him, while we were rebellious sinners, he said, I'm going to send my son and I'm going to have him die the death you should die. You deserve the death. He doesn't deserve the death. He's the only man who's ever lived with no sin, the only one. He's the one who never had to die. But he took our death upon him willingly. That's how much love he has for us. That's the good news, right? He came and he took our place. He died for us. Maybe you're familiar with the story of the original creation as described in Genesis 1 and 2 and, and ultimately chapter 3 and how God created man in the Garden of Eden and he made him perfect in his own image and there was no sin and the whole deal. And, and so God says that he created Adam, he put him in the garden and, and the Bible says that God used to come down in the cool of the day and he'd have fellowship with Adam and and man, they just had the time of their lives. It was a wonderful time together. And well, then the story goes a little further and we hear about the serpent entering in and, and deceiving Eve and causing her to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that she was commanded not to eat of. And she ate of it and Adam ate of it. And as a result, that was sin and sin entered in. And when that happened, that sin became a barrier. So for example, if I use my Bible to illustrate, so God made Adam perfect and holy and God had fellowship with him. But once sin entered in, there's now a barrier. And God wants to come down and have fellowship with Adam and Eve again, but you know what? He can't anymore, right? Because there's a barrier. And, and just because of that, well, man is sinful and separated from God. And so what did God do? Well, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ came down eventually, and he lived the perfect sinless life. And when he died that death on the cross, what was that death that he died? He died the death to take away our sin so that we once again can have that perfect fellowship with God again. God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much he loves us. That's what he did for us. It's, it's written for us another way in 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12 where it says, this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. It would be, for example, if I took one of these connection cards like you have in the pew in front of you, and let's just say, for example, that this connection card represents eternal life. And let's just say my Bible this time represents Jesus Christ. It says God has given us this record that he has given to us eternal life and this life is in his son. 
he who has the Son has the life. But if you don't have the Son, well, you don't have the life either. That's the way it works. He's given to us the option, the opportunity to be able to get eternal life, but that eternal life is packaged in the package of Jesus Christ. So you need to have Jesus Christ in your life in order to guarantee that you have eternal life and you can live forever with him and not according to that second death. Jesus Christ died once for everyone. He died for the sins of the whole world and probably every single one of you has already heard this before you came here today. But what maybe some of you haven't thought through, I don't know, and so forgive me, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it. And you need to get this. This may be the single most important thing for some of you to hear today. Just because Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world, which he did, does not mean that the whole world automatically gets to go to heaven. Do you hear me? Just because Jesus died for the sins of the whole world does not mean that the whole world automatically gets to go to heaven. Remember Revelation 21.8? Some people are going to hell, right? Some people are. So how does he differentiate? I mean, what's this all about? I mean, how am I then going to make sure? What do I have to do so that I'm not one of those, but I get to be one of Christ's? Exactly what do I have to do? Well, certainly the Lord doesn't leave us in darkness. Certainly he explains these things to us. So in the Gospel of John, chapter number 1 and verse number 12, it says very clearly that as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that, how do we receive him? By believing on his name. That's how. So we have to receive Jesus Christ. Remember the illustration? Eternal life is in Christ. If you have Christ, well, you have the life. And if you don't, then you don't. It would be as if I stood here and extended my hand and said, who would like to have this gift? It's as though God is doing this very thing. Who would like to have the gift of eternal life? The gift of eternal life comes in Jesus Christ. You say, well, I'd like to have it. And I'd say, okay, we'll come get it. And you just sit there and you say, okay. But you don't come get it. You say, I, I agree with that story. I say, well, come get it. And you say, well, I think it's a great story. I say, well, come get it. But you never receive it as your own. Well, it's not yours then, is it? It's not yours until you receive it. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. As many as believed on his name. How exactly do I receive him? How exactly do I believe? What exactly is that all about? I don't mean to insult anybody by describing these things. I'm telling you, when I first came to faith in Jesus Christ, I was 21 years old. I was a college student, and I did not grow up in a, in a Christian home. I never went to church when I was young. When I first heard this story in my life at that time, years ago, I truly was clueless. I had no idea. And somebody would have said, and you can be saved. Saved from what? And you can believe, how do I do this? You need to receive Christ. Where is he? How do I do that? I truly had no idea. And because there may be others who are in the situation that I was in, I always feel like it's fair to at least describe that. So in Romans chapter 10 and verses 9 and 10, the Bible is very, very clear exactly what we have to do and how we have to do that, right? Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, but the whole world does not automatically go to heaven. You have to do something, right? What do you have to do? Make sure you go to Sunday school? No. Make sure you get baptized in water? No. Make sure you give so much money to something? Certainly not. What exactly do you have to do? Well, Romans 10, 9, and 10 tells you what you have to do. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. 
And if thou shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, Easter, right? Thou may be saved if you remain really, really good. No, it doesn't say that. Thou shalt be saved. Why? For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. How do I receive the Lord Jesus Christ? You agree with the gospel. You believe the gospel, but not just in general. I don't just believe it that, oh, I guess that's true, and I guess that's what the Lord did. Well, okay. I mean, I got no problem with that. No, you believe it and apply it to yourself personally. You receive it as your very own. It's no longer that he died for the sins of the whole world. It's that he died for my sins. Because my sins put him on that cross. And I need forgiveness of my sins. And I need his death that he did not deserve to pay for my death that I do deserve. And I, when I make that specific application to me, well, then God keeps his end of the deal, right? A couple verses down in verse number 13 in Romans chapter 10. Man, I love this verse. For whosoever shall call upon in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever. You know, some 35 years ago when this happened in my life, I recognized whosoever, I could just write my name in there. If Jeff will call on the name of the Lord, he'll be saved. You know, you can write your name right in there. You know, this is the story of the gospel. This is the story of the gospel. That means you, you can be the one who calls on the name of the Lord, and you can know with 100% certainty that you'll have your home in heaven with him. That's a more full and complete explanation of the exact same thing we saw in the first four verses of 1 Corinthians 15. That is the gospel, right? This is Jesus died for our sins, and he was buried, and he rose again the third day. And if you believe that story applied specifically to you, well, then you, too, will have eternal life. It's just that it can't be that simple. It is exactly that simple. In fact, all the other things that people want to muddy the waters with, different religious acts and different ideas of, of quotas of so many good works that you have to do to outweigh the bad work. No, absolutely not. That is all that is required. Why? Because you couldn't possibly do enough good works if you thought you wanted to start to count them. There's only one possible way that you can be with the Lord forever, and that is by His mercy by his grace and receiving the free gift. Listen, salvation is only free to you. It costs God everything. And he paid it in full. He paid it in full. He died because we're sinners and because we're separated from a holy God. He was buried and he rose from the grave victorious over death and hell. Why? Because in Revelation chapter 1 it says that when he rose, he literally has the keys to death and hell. He's in charge of it all. You believe that, and you too will be saved from the lake of fire that awaits all unrepentant sinners. That's why Jesus Christ said when he had his earthly ministry in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. It's clear. In fact, I don't think it could be any clearer. It's not about being a good person, whatever that means, or doing enough good things that may outweigh your bad things. 
I mean, it's just as clear as it can be. Yet still, we do frequently see what is now my second point for our outline, the gospel denied. The gospel, well, it is denied. We have a free will. And it shouldn't surprise us, right? I mean, doubters and skeptics have existed throughout all time. One of Jesus' own disciples is a guy named Thomas. You, you remember doubting Thomas, don't you? He's the one who had to see the prints of the nails in the hands of the resurrected Lord before he would believe that he was indeed resurrected. Remember that? Listen, skeptics exist today, and they're going to continue exi to exist all the way up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Second Peter writes of it in chapter number 3, in verse number 3, where it says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And so he points out that all the way up until the time that Jesus Christ will return again, and when he returns again, he returns not to save anymore, but to judge, that there's going to be people who are scoffers. There's going to be people who are saying, look, I've been hearing people saying the Lord's going to come. He hasn't come yet. That's just a fable. That's just a story. People for generations have been saying that stuff. I don't believe that. Well, he tells us there's going to be people like that. And in my opinion, there's basically two categories of scoffers. The first, maybe the most obvious, would be people who consider themselves atheists. They just don't believe in anything. Okay, um, although, sadly, that seems to be a growing number among the world population. In my opinion, the, the number of people who truly don't believe anything still pales in comparison to the second category that I'll just go ahead and call optimists may I say baseless optimists because these would be people who just would categorically say well God is good of course he is and therefore everybody's okay when they die well I mean that's optimistic but it's not accurate because we've seen that that's not the case yeah, I'm a pastor of a church and Sometimes we're called upon to try and give comfort in times of loss and funerals and such. And you spend a lot of time around people who have lost loved ones. You frequently hear in the corners people talking about, well, you know, they're, they're in a better place now. And, and maybe they are, and, well, maybe they're not. I mean, how do you really know? Is there a way that you can really know? You see... People that are even optimistic, like no matter what, they're just dealing, I understand they're dealing with their grief. I understand that. But at the same time, even these such people are scoffers because they ignore or scoff at what God said about the gospel. And they just make up their own plan. They just say, I'm not buying that. I, you know, I just believe what I believe. Tough. Okay, well, you're scoffing at God's plan then. But the Lord is clear in his word, right? He promised that he would return, and he promised that when he returns, he's going to judge, and he's going to keep his promises, right? So continuing in 2 Peter 3, and verse number 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise to return and to judge, right? The promise of his coming. He's not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, 
not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You say, where is the promise of his coming? They've been talking about his coming all along. He hasn't come back yet. God's answer to such a person is, well, it's because I'm long-suffering. I'm waiting, hoping that even you'll get saved. He hasn't come back yet because he wants more of us to get in on it, right? And it's God's mercy that he hasn't yet, because let me tell you something, when he does, well then, there are no more chances. All the chances are used up. Because it says in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come. It will come as a thief in the night. And here's what's going to happen. In the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Y'all, this is not a parable. This is not symbolic. This is God's prophetic promise. It's a promise. And he's not slack concerning his promises. And the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. If you're wrestling with the decision for your heart and your life and what are you going to do with Jesus Christ today, can I encourage you in love? Man, don't put that decision off. Don't put that decision off. Going on in verse 11, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? What manner of persons ought you to be? Well, don't just be a better neighbor. You better be somebody who repents and believes the gospel. That's what you need to do. Listen, it's not just... People from Missouri who need to see it to believe it. There's people all over this world who are like that, right? You ever heard somebody say a statement like this? Unless somebody dies and comes back to tell us about it, I'm not going to believe it. Well, that's the point, isn't it? That's what Jesus did. He died and came back to tell us about it. You say, oh, you tricked me. That's, that doesn't count. That's not what I meant. Well, why not? Unless you're already determined that you wouldn't believe even if somebody did come back to tell you about it. You see, the issue is never this physical wit. The issue is your heart. The issue is whether or not you're sensitive and willing to believe what God tells you is true. In fact, this is so important. The Lord gives us a literal story of such in Luke chapter 16. And in Luke chapter 16, the story that I'm going to read for you is not a parable, and it's not symbolic. How do I know? Because whenever there's parables, the Bible says, oh, this is a parable. <laughs> and it doesn't say that about this one. Luke 16, 19, there was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed, 
so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Please let Lazarus be raised from the dead and go to my brothers, because if somebody would raise from the dead and talk to my brothers, certainly they would believe and not end up where I end up. Verse 29, Abraham saith unto him, notice, they have Moses and the prophets, referring to the scriptures. They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Skeptics, scoffers, making excuses. At the end of the day, remember Revelation 21.8, that list of terrible people, the fearful and the unbelieving. They're just unbelievers. They're just unbelievers. God gave us his word, and John 17.17 17 says his word is truth. He gave us his word, and he gave us the truth. Jesus Christ said in John chapter 14, I love this, starting in verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. If what, if what I'm sharing with you today is causing you to be mildly troubled, let not your heart be troubled, Jesus said. You believe in God, and, and my guess is probably almost, probably everyone in here, you believe, why would you not be here otherwise? I mean, you believe in God, he says, okay, but I got something else, believe also in me. You believe in God, everybody believes in God, believe also in me. Then he goes on, I love verse 2, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I'd have told you. In other words, if it's not the way that I'm telling you, Jesus said, I'd have told you that way. I'm not lying to you. I'm not making this up. I'm going to the point of telling you so that you know the way that it is. If it were not this way, I'd have told you the right way. You see that? And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also, and whither I go, you know, and the way, you know, you know how to get there? And thank God for Thomas, because he asked the questions we wonder sometimes. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And here's the key, verse 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life, right? No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. All your religion, all your good works, all your good deeds, all of your things that you think maybe are enough for you, he makes it very clear and he says, if it weren't this way, I'd have told you the way it really is, but this is the way it is. There's only one way to the Father and it's by me. Why? Because eternal life is in Jesus Christ. That's how it works. He made his gospel clear, but some won't believe it. But when he returns, well... When he returns now, you'll see. So at the very end of all the Bible, in the very last chapter, in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 7, it says, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. You better keep them now, because once he returns, well, it's too late. 
verse 10 of Revelation 22, And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, when I return, well, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, at the time that I return, well, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, at the time that I return, well, praise the Lord, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. So the gospel's been defined, and in far too many cases, the gospel is denied. And we're going to wrap this up quickly. The gospel is declared, verses 5 through 8. Listen, whenever we speak of an historic event that we were not personally present to witness, have you ever asked yourself, how can I really know that happened? I mean, if you weren't there yourself, but everybody says it happened, how do you know they're not lying to you? How do you know if it's true? Well, the reason you know it's true is that you believe that there is a sufficient list of witnesses, people who have seen and testified to the validity of whatever that thing is that happened. And because they have testified and it has been reported accurately, well, okay, it, it probably happened, right? It probably did. I mean, that system is good enough for our legal justice system, right? I mean, how do we really know anything from the past? I mean, how do we really know that George Washington was our first president? Well, because somebody wrote it down. Well, how do you know they didn't lie? Well, I don't know. I just figured they'd, why would they lie about something like that? Okay, well, that's the only way you know is because somebody who was there wrote it down. And they kept the record, so now we know. You don't doubt that, right? I hope not. Well, the resurrection was a historical fact, and, and I get it. It was a supernatural event, and I get it. It's hard to believe for some, but when Jesus rose from the dead, well, people started talking about it, right? Do we believe him? Are they crazy? Are they lying? I mean, what's really going on? I mean, how can we possibly know? Well, that's what we have in verses 5 to 8 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because what we're dealing with here are literal eyewitnesses, historic witnesses of the resurrection. Where it says that he was seen of Cephas, verse number 5. That's Peter. That's, a, that's, that's another way of calling his name. And then it says he was seen of the twelve, the twelve apostles that followed Christ right along his journeys while he was on the earth for three and a half years. At this point, Judas is out. He's replaced by a guy named Matthias. It goes on in verse 6, and it says, Then he was seen by over 500 brethren, over 500 eyewitnesses, most of which are still alive, some of which have fallen asleep, meaning they've passed away. Okay, most of which are still alive. In other words, just go, just go talk to them. They're, they're all around. Just go ask them. They were there. Okay, that would have been cool if you were there then, right? Then he was seen of James, verse number 7. Odds are he's talking about James, who is the Lord's half-brother. The other James, the apostle, was probably included of the list of the twelve. And then he says, of all the apostles. Well, I thought there was only twelve. Well, actually, the Bible lists a whole bunch of other guys who are not just the twelve, who are also called apostles. That's a fun Bible study we're not doing today. But they would be people like Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and Apollos and some guys named Andronicus and Junia, and it goes on and on and on. And there's other people who are considered apostles. He said he's seen of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also, Paul said. I mean, that's a long list of eyewitnesses to the historic resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
I mean, if you doubted the resurrection and you were alive then, that would have been helpful, wouldn't it? It would have been helpful to be able to go to somebody's house and say, hey, were you there? Did you see? And they're like, yeah, dude, I saw that thing. It was amazing. And you're like, oh, wow. That's and then you talk to another and another and another and another, and you're like, I guess it did happen. That would have been helpful. But here we are 2,000 years later, and, well, there are skeptics these days, and so we don't have historic eyewitnesses anymore. But you know what we do have today? We have contemporary, what I'll call heart witnesses. We have contemporary witnesses of the resurrection. They, they witness through their conscience, right? And this includes all current born-again believers in Jesus Christ today. I am a witness of the resurrection. Of course not the physical bodily resurrection. I wasn't around. I didn't see that. I didn't see a dream or a vision. But I know for a fact, right, as so many of you also do, that he indeed rose from the dead. Why? Because he's alive. He is alive. You say, really? How can you say such a thing? And that may sound strange to somebody who's yet to fully grasp this, but can I just tell you that the Christian life, it's not just a religious duty. In fact, it's not religion at all. The Christian life is transformation. It's entering into a real, living, personal relationship with somebody who's alive, Jesus Christ. That's what it is, by believing the gospel and applying it to yourself personally. That's why there's songs written like a famous old hymn called He Lives. Many of you have been in church, you know the, the chorus to the song He Lives. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives inside my heart. And you say, man, that sure is a nice little bit of poetry, isn't it? No, that's actual historic fact. That's actually the literal tr spiritual transaction and transformation that takes place. You might not be able to explain it, but it's true. And the people who have experienced it know that it's true. Listen, the moment that you put your personal faith and trust in Christ's death for you, for your sins, you ask Him to forgive your sins, you ask Him to come into your heart, you ask Him to take away and forgive your sins and give you the free gift of eternal life, you apply them to your life, you commit to follow Him every day of your life, and this transaction takes place, and the Bible says that the Holy Spirit of God at that instant comes in and takes up residence inside your body, your body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you become a contemporary heart witness of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in your life today. The Holy Spirit comes, lives inside of what was considered your dead human spirit, hence the term you are born again of the Spirit into new life. All that's left, friends, is your decision on the gospel. You see, not only did Jesus Christ resurrect, but the Bible says that he is the resurrection, right? John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Here's the question to all of us. Believest thou this? Do you really believe that? Because that's where the rubber meets the road, right? Or let me ask you this, have you ever done that? Or would you like to? 
Because you can. You, you can do that right now. Remember we referred to Revelation chapter 22, the very end of the Bible, and he talks about how, you know, when it time comes, man, I mean, let him that's filthy be filthy still. And Okay, but it also says in Revelation 22, right at the very end of all of God's holy writ, in verse 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst, come. And here it is, whosoever will. Take of the water of life freely because it is free to you. It is free, but you have to come. You have to accept it. We started off by asking, what is your life? Well, I've got another reference for you. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24, it says, For all flesh, that's your physical life, right? All flesh is as grass. And all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away. But... The word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. Today, as is phrased in a short poem, life is short, death is sure, sin's the cause, Christ the cure. And he can be your cure today too, if you'll just accept it, if you'll just receive him. It means you have to humble yourself. It means you have to admit that you're a sinner. You have to admit that you are headed down the wrong path, and you have to personally and individually receive the gift of eternal life found only in Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to give you the opportunity to do that if you'll pray with me right now. Let's bow our heads and let's close.